You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. On January 31st, President Donald Trump announced Neil Gorsuch as his nomination for the Supreme Court. Gorsuch, should he be confirmed, will be filling the seat of late Justice Antonin Scalia, an originalist. Gorsuch's nomination was met with applause from conservatives and kind words from President Trump. Judge Gorsuch has outstanding legal skills, a brilliant mind, tremendous discipline, and has earned bipartisan support. When he was nominated to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, he was confirmed by the Senate unanimously. From Gorsuch himself, we've heard the standard nomination response. Standing here in a house of history and acutely aware of my own imperfections, I pledge that if I am confirmed, I will do all my powers permit to be a faithful servant of the Constitution and laws of this great country. Democrats, like Nancy Pelosi, have been outspoken against his appointment. It's it's a very uh, hostile appointment. Hail fellow, well-met, lovely family, I'm sure. But as far as your family is concerned, and all of if you breathe air, drink water, eat food, take medicine, or in any other way interact uh, with the courts, this is a very bad decision. To make sense out of all of this, today I'm joined by Maya Sen, assistant professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. Maya has recently co-authored multiple papers about the judiciary, and given that we're nearing the confirmation hearings for Judge Neil Gorsuch, I wanted to sit down with Maya and talk more about her work and hear her thoughts on what Gorsuch's confirmation will mean for the ideological balance of the court. Maya, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So to start, we'll talk about the man of the hour, Judge Gorsuch, soon. But I wanted to first discuss another part of your recent research, something that's very relevant to how we understand the courts. You looked at law clerks and their ideology. You found that law clerks lean pretty liberal, right? Um, That's right. So some people might be pretty surprised. Can you tell me just quickly how you came to that finding? Yeah, so while there, I should back up a second and and kind of explain the methodology that we take in this set of papers. So my co-authors and I have basically mined all campaign contributions made to the federal, made made to, I should say, uh, national and state level politicians and political committees. Um, all of these are actually disclosed to the Federal Elections Commission. So this is all public information. So who you contribute to is actually um, public information. Um, whenever you make a contribution, you have to give the FEC. The FEC has to, the, the organization to which you contribute has to make a report to the FEC, and that actually includes your name, where you work, and how much the contribution was for. And so that, con- that information is all publicly available. So we collected all of that information for anyone who's ever made a contribution, and we use that information and essentially triangulate for each person who's made a contribution their rough ideology. Yeah. Right. So, and, and you found when it comes to law clerks, these guys, based on how they oh, donated, yes. they're pretty liberal. Yes. Um, okay. So I, get, I just explained to you the entire methodology <laughs> yes. that we used. So as a whole, the legal profession tilts to the left. And it tilts to the left even comparing to other similarly educated professions. So when you look, when you compare lawyers and doctors, um, lawyers are more liberal. When you compare lawyers and uh, business people, lawyers are more liberal. When you compare lawyers and accountants, lawyers are more liberal. So it's a pretty left-leaning profession. Um, And it gets more and more left-leaning when you look at graduates of the really top programs. Right. So when you look at um, graduates of Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Chicago, Michigan, UVA, Berkeley, uh, Cornell, uh, Penn, um, these are law schools that are called the top 14 law schools, yeah. which is the traditional top tier. Um, when you look at those law schools, the graduates of those programs are even more left-leaning than lawyers overall. Right. 
Now, going back to the question you asked, uh, law clerks. Law clerks are the cream of the crop. Yep. Right? So you're getting even more rarefied in terms of who, who these um, people are, who these recent law graduates are, and they really are coming from these top schools. So when you look at lawyers being liberal, graduates of top programs being even more liberal, and now you're looking at law clerks, which is the, the most, you know, likely the most elite group that these very elite programs have to offer, they're even more liberal. So going back to um, the question you asked, we know this because we can compare their contributions to the contributions right. made by other lawyers. Um, but it, it also makes sense given kind of the overall trajectory of, of the bar and of the legal profession, which leans to the left. So it's, it might not be that a conservative judge is looking to hire a liberal law clerk. It's just possibly that the pool that he has to select from is more liberal-leaning. So as a result, the employee is more likely to be liberal-leaning. Right. So judges, we, we assume... And I think this is the correct assumption. We assume that they have political preferences and they have ideological right. preferences. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we believe to be true, and we can actually show this empirically using our data, is that they want to hire clerks who are like-minded. Yep. So if you're someone like Antonin Scalia, you want to hire people who resemble you or yeah, people who look course. like you or people who think like you. Um, Scalia is actually an interesting example because he would act, every year he, he more or less hired one clerk that was a liberal. So he was kind of an okay. outlier there. If you're um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you probably also want to hire clerks who look like you, which means that you're going to be more left-leaning, more liberal, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we think that judges are hiring clerks who kind of look like them. Now, the pattern that I just described is actually at odds with the pattern I described earlier, which right. is that law clerks tend to be liberal and exactly. graduates of top law schools yeah. tend to be liberal. So what's a conservative judge to do? Um, it turns out that conservative judges really aggressively compete over the conservative pool of yeah. candidates, right? So if you're a graduate of a top law school from Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Chicago, right. um, and you're conservative, you're a conservative candidate, um, you will probably have more of a choice in yeah. terms of deciding who to clerk for, or kind of what career to pursue, um, and you might have multiple offers. Some law school graduates might have just uh, changed their ideologies. Yes, based I, on I actually that. tell I I actually have presented this in front of law school audiences, yeah. and I tell them, well, you know, if you tell your students and they, you know they want to be judges or they want to be clerks, you could tell them to become conservative because then they're going to have more options down the road. Yeah. Actually, just because there there are fewer of you. So interesting. Okay, so after kind of looking at these ideologies, you've also looked at how these law clerks influence judges. That's right. So talk to me a little bit about that. So, um, you know, I looked at this exact question. Do law clerks influence the judges for whom they clerked? We actually did this looking specifically at the Supreme Court. Right. Which if you think about it, you know, if there's going to be one instance where it's particularly important, it's going to be at the U.S. Supreme Court level. Um, and we actually find that the answer to the question, do law clerks influence the justices' votes, is actually yes. Um, so what we find is that um, in terms where a justice has particularly conservative law clerks, compared to his or her average, um, in that term, they're actually going to be more likely to rule more cases or vote on more cases in a conservative direction. Now, it's not a huge effect. It's, so it's not, you know, ju justices at, at the Supreme Court level will hear about 70 cases a year. Right. So between 70 and 80 votes, they'll cast about 70 or 80 votes. Um, we're seeing an effect that at its maximum translates into about three or four votes out of 70 or 80. Right. So it's not this huge, overwhelming impact, right? but it's enough to be important. So 
a, a, a growing number of cases are being decided by the Supreme Court on a five to four basis, right. which is a which is just basically a one vote difference um, makes the opinion, you know, sways it in either direction. So if each justice has a change in about three or four votes per year, that could actually impact a significant number of cases. I think you guys also looked at cases that were more prominent, um, more legally important, and there was a bit of a difference there in terms of influence, right? Exactly. So um, we tend to see this law clerk influence to be the greatest when it comes to really important cases. Yeah. So cases, we, op- we, we tested this by looking at cases that had been mentioned on the front page of the New York Times. And we saw this effect to be the greatest in those sorts of cases. That led us to think that that second explanation was more persuasive. This is the explanation where law clerks kind of lobby right. the justices and they actually interject their opinions and make more aggressive recommendations, um, in part because we think that law clerks are more inclined to do that when it comes to those really important kind of sexy constitutional law topics, the ones that are the most likely to appear on the front page of the New York Times, less so on the more mundane, more run-of-the-mill sorts right. of cases. A little bit about Judge Neil Gorsuch. Um, it's likely that this is shaping up to be a, a fairly big fight over his confirmation. So I know you've done a little bit of research into this. So how do Americans, the public, evaluate judicial nominees? Yeah, so this is, it's, it's a very interesting question. I fielded several experiments looking to see what characteristics lead to more or less support from members of the public. Okay. Um, and one thing that's really interesting is that the previous studies that have looked at this have found a somewhat puzzling pattern, which is that um, members of the public actually give a lot of deference to the Supreme Court, and they also give a lot of deference to nominees to the Supreme Court. Um, they tend to think that nominees to the Supreme Court usually are qualified right. and usually um, have this characteristic of judicial legitimacy. They believe that they're sort of, they appear to fit the profile of what a judge should look like. Right. So I took as the motivating example the nomination of Merrick Garland, mm-hmm. uh, who was named by Barack Obama somewhat late in his presidency after the death of Antonin Scalia. Right. Uh, Merrick Garland is really interesting because he had spent a number of years on a lower court, was very well respected at that lower court level, um, unbelievably impeccable credentials, um, Harvard undergrad, I believe, Harvard Law School, a number of years on the D.C. Circuit, three years as its chief judge, just kind of over-the-top um, credentials. And yet, if you look at the numbers, he was actually opposed by a lot of people, and not just by um, Republican members of Congress and Republican senators, but also by members of the public who identified as Republicans. So he actually engendered a lot of partisan opposition. And I thought that was really interesting because on the one hand, he, he, he's one of the most qualified, clearly qualified candidates we've ever had to the Supreme Court. And on the other hand, his nomination ended up going nowhere. And it wasn't just elites. It was actually um, from grassroots opposition yeah. as well as elite opposition. Um, so the experiment that I did to try to tease apart these sorts of questions was to um, do a nationally representative survey where I presented people with different profiles of hypothetical judicial candidates. And I, I actually alternated showing profiles that identified the hypothetical candidate as a conservative Republican or a moderate Republican or an independent or a um, conserv- uh, 
extreme uh, Democrat or leans Democrat. Right. So different uh, partisan affiliations. Um, and what I found doing that actually was that the thing, the single thing that predicted most strongly a person's level of support for a judicial candidate was how close they were to the candidate politically. So Democrats supported the Democratic candidate, Republicans supported the Republican candidate, and that was just a consistent pattern sort of regardless of the other characteristics, regardless of the hypothetical judge was a woman or a man or African-American or white or um, a graduate of a top law school or a second top law school. It was actually the, the most overwhelming thing was whether that um, candidate was of the same party or party affiliation as you. Um, that led me to really question the previous research on this topic, right. but also to really see Merrick Garland's nomination, I think, much more clearly. So for Garland, I don't think it was a question of whether he was qualified or unqualified. I think the vast majority of Americans thought he was qualified. It was a question of whether they actually supported him. And support and qualifications are actually turned out to be two different things. You can think someone is very qualified, but you can actually still not support them. And that's sort of what happened among Republicans with Merrick Garland. Now, g going back to the example of Neil Gorsuch, what can we expect in terms of his nomination? Yeah. For Gorsuch, he's unbelievably qualified. Right. Um, Harvard Law Degree. I think he has a, a master's degree from Oxford or Cambridge. Mm -hmm. um, many years on the lower court level. So I think if we were to ask people, uh, the American public, is Neil Gorsuch qualified to be on the Supreme Court? I think many people would say yes. You'd probably see some differences between Republicans and Democrats in how they answer that question, but right. not overwhelming. Now, if you ask them, would you support Neil Gorsuch's confirmation, or would you want your senator to support Neil Gorsuch's nomination, then I, I expect to see fairly significant partisan differences. I expect to see that Republicans would overwhelmingly support Gorsuch's nomination, and I would expect that Democrats would pretty strongly oppose Gorsuch's nomination. Right, which is interesting because judges don't run political campaigns. No, they don't. And they don't promise to take positions if they're confirmed. Um, they actually are supposed to remain pretty impartial. That's right? right. Yeah, that's right. And that raises a kind of an important point here, which is that most people don't know with good precision the candidate's ideology. Right. Right. We only have noisy signals. We we sort of know from reading about Gorsuch that he tends to be conservative. The real piece of information that we have is that he was nominated by Donald Trump. Right. And that's that's a useful signal for most people. Right. So for most Democrats particularly right now in this time of hyper-polarization, they, they will take that, most Democrats would take that as a cue to oppose Gorsuch's nomination. And in terms of his ideology with the upcoming hearings, we might not get as much information on his leanings because he doesn't necessarily have to answer certain questions, right, during That's the right. hearings. Yeah. So he's allowed to say, I feel like this isn't something that, that I should disclose. Um, and you've written before that when you have a Senate and a White House that are ideal ideologically the same, that leaves for a little bit of room for a candidate that might be ultra-conservative. Gorsuch could be ultra-conservative, but that might not come out. Um, do you think that's what's happening? Well, his confirmation hearings haven't started yet, right. but I, I fully anticipate that that's what's going to happen. Yeah. 
So if you think about it from the perspective of the Republican Party, and we have to think about it from the perspective of the Republican Party because they're in charge of all three branches of government right now. Um, Or I should say after Gorsuch is confirmed, they will be in charge of all three branches of government. Um, So if you're a Republican senator, you probably want to tread pretty lightly with Neil Gorsuch. You want to give him a lot of deference. You want to give him ample opportunity to show his legal prowess. But you probably don't want to push him too hard on his politics because there's only downside to you. There's only there's only the possibility that he's going to say something that might not be received well by your constituents or that might be sort of a soundbite that would be negative. Right. Um, And from Gorsuch's perspective, he's approaching this probably in the sense that he doesn't want to say anything that would um, give away too much of his true beliefs about where he feels Supreme Court precedent should go. Right. Um, Why, from his perspective? Well, again, it's all about the downside risk and relatively little upside reward for doing something like that. This pattern where uh, senators ask softball questions and nominees give softball answers has actually gone on for a long time. In fact, there's there's a norm in confirmation hearings called the Ginsburg Rule. And this, yeah, this was actually started um, by, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It comes from her. Um, but it really comes from uh, Justice, or excuse me, Judge Bork, Robert Bork, who was the real person who got into trouble by sort of talking too much at his confirmation hearing. So after the Bork hearings, he was rejected by the Senate. So after right. that, um, nominees became much more careful about what they would disclose, what they would talk about, refusing to answer questions that could potentially come back and bite them later. Right. And so they actually sort of decline explicitly to address questions or answer questions about issues that might bec- come before the court. And so Ruth Bader Ginsburg just repeatedly said, I- I'm not going to answer that. That's a question that's likely to come before the court. I'm not right. going to answer that. Um, John Roberts did that, I think, over 10 times in his confirmation hearings. And sort of ever since then, it's really become well understood that nominees just simply won't answer these sorts of questions. Senators sort of try, um, particularly opposition party senators try. Um, senators from the same party really won't push very hard. And given the current political climate, it's very likely that we're not going to get a lot of useful information out of Gorsuch at his hearings, except for kind of the standard platitudes um, that we've come to expect. But we're not going to learn a whole lot about what he feels about important cases likely to come before the court. Right. Research showed that based on his campaign contributions before becoming a federal judge, um, he was estimated to be pretty conservative. Yeah, So we do have that background data. I think it was 87% more conservative than other federal judges. So should he be approved if, you know, we're going to take his former conservative contributions into account? How do we think that's going to balance the ideology of the court? Well, okay, so so let's talk a little bit about where we place Gorsuch. So as you said, we placed him at the 87th percentile. Yeah, yeah so he is more conservative than 80%, 87% of all court of appeals judges. Right. Sort of the, the judges who are currently at the same level as he is. Which is very conservative. Yeah. Um, now, uh, everything that we've seen in terms of his decision making uh, when he was on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals comports with that. Yep. Um, everything we know about him personally comports with that as well. So this is a this is a sense where all different data sources, qualitative and quantitative, are pointing in the same direction, which is that he's going to be a conservative member of the court. If he's confirmed, now now one reason why I think Democrats are approaching this somewhat warily, but not 
raising hell, so to speak, right. um, is because he is replacing Antonin Scalia, right. who was for many, many years really the intellectual anchor of the conservative wing of the Supreme Court. Right. So Gorsuch, in some respects, is replacing someone who was ideologically somewhat similar to him. So is the composition of the Supreme Court going to change? I think most people would agree that the answer is probably not. It's not going to change hugely. Anthony Kennedy is going to remain as important right. as he was previously. He's going, right. to, he's going to continue to dominate in terms of getting the attention from the parties and representing the swing vote on the Supreme right. Court. The real way in which Gorsuch is going to affect things for a long time to come is in terms of how old he is. And I, I say I, I realize that sounds kind of strange, but if you think about it, Scalia was in his, I believe he was in his early 80s when he passed away, maybe even late 70s. Right. Um, at most, he would have had another 10 years on the court. We don't know, but I mean, 10, 15 years max. Um, Gorsuch is 49, I believe. Yeah. Um, so he will be on the court for a long time to come. And so if we think of him as being ideologically very proximate to Antonin Scalia, we've essentially um, lengthened the tenure of the intellectual conservative wing of the Supreme Court by an another 30 or 40 years. You know, he has this conservative background and he might be similar to Justice Scalia. Do you think there's somewhat of a chance that his law clerks, maybe they are a little bit more liberal leaning, could have a moderating influence when it comes to these really contentious cases that are definitely bound to come up should he be confirmed. Possibly. We know that Gorsuch will be able to essentially attract whatever law clerks he wants yeah. being at the Supreme Court, right? He's going to be one of, like, it's going to be the most sought after job for graduates of the top law schools to clerk right. on the Supreme Court. And I'm, I'm sure a large number of them are going to be jumping at the chance to clerk for Neil Gorsuch. Um, if Gorsuch comes out onto the court, if he's confirmed and he comes out on the court and he hires clerks that lean to left, then we could expect to see a moderating influence of those law clerks. Yeah. If he sticks to his ideological roots and hires from the more conservative end, um, hires members of the Federalist Society and, and hires folks like that, then we would expect to see them pull him in a more conservative direction. So to, like, it's hard for us to think about that question right. without knowing what kind of law clerks he is going to end up hiring is the short end, the yeah. short answer to the yeah. question. We, don't, we actually don't know. Um, and we don't have a whole lot of information about his former law clerks. That is right. one thing we don't have. Because so, it's only if they've made political donations that you guys would have them. Yeah, and, and he's, actually, he's actually recent enough that um, we don't have a lot of information on his clerks from when he was on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. Right. So we actually don't have a whole lot of information on that. Although, interestingly enough, um, if you watch a lot of CNN and C-SPAN and MSNBC, there are pro-Neil Gorsuch ads that actually feature I saw one of his today. former law clerks. Yes. Oh, um, interesting. I actually yeah. saw Donald Trump um, tweeted like a short a short video about Neil Gorsuch today. Yeah, and I, I think that they're, they include testaments from his former law clerks. Interesting. Is that standard for pre-confirmation? No, it's not. I've actually I've been following the Supreme Court for a while. Right. I've actually never seen an ad for a nomination that's pending, not to my knowledge. Interesting, because I was thinking the same thing. I know this isn't maybe an area of your research, but why do you think why do you think they're doing that? You know, it's really worth thinking about moving forward, and something that I think more and more scholars are thinking about is what does this increasing polarized, politicized climate mean for the nation's courts? 
I think Donald Trump is a very interesting example, not just because of this, the Gorsuch nomination, right. kind of the yeah. advertisement that's happening, but also because he's the only president in modern times that's really attacked the independence of the federal courts. Right. Yeah. Um, so, sort of so publicly and so repeatedly, and he's done so as a private citizen, and now he's doing it. He's done so as president. Um, we've never really seen that before, and it'll just be really interesting to see whether that damages the reputation of the courts, right? Um, whether that damages the independence of the courts, um, and whether that leads people, Republicans and Democrats, or maybe Republicans or Democrats, to think that the courts are politically oriented, right? which in the past they really haven't. They do. The American public does give a lot of deference to the courts and tends to think that the courts are less partisan and politically driven than the other branches of government. Right. Is the presidency of Donald Trump going to change that? Right. And I think I don't know the answer to that. And I think that's a really important open question. And I think I've seen Neil Gorsuch has somewhat commented, I want to say, on Donald Trump's comments about the courts. Yes, I think he called I think he called them discouraging, I think is what right. he said. Just like right. myself. We're watching very closely what Neil Gorsuch's response would be to Donald Trump's attack, for example, on the Ninth Circuit panel that heard the executive order on the travel ban. Right. Um and apparently, you know, Gorsuch at that point was meeting individually with members of the Senate. Um, he's he's not said anything publicly, obviously, right. but it does seem like he did mention that in his conversations with some of the senators. Interesting. And I think a lot of people took that as sort of a kind of an indication that he takes judicial independence seriously. Right. And maybe will be willing, should he be called on to do so, um, stand up to the White House. Um, as a Supreme Court justice, which I think for a lot of people, you know, is a very important character or a, a very important judicial philosophy for a Supreme Court justice right. is to, to believe strongly in judicial independence. But, um, yeah, it will be absolutely interesting to see. Interesting. So is there anything you think we should try and listen in for during his confirmation hearings? Should he let anything slip or do you think we're probably going to get just the standard responses? So I think Neil Gorsuch is, is obviously a very intelligent man. Right. He has been around the block in terms of appeals court arguments. Um, he is an expert rhetorical strategist himself. Yeah. And so I feel like he's going to be very dexterous in how he handles questions from the senators. And he's not going to slip up. And he is not going to give away any answers that he doesn't have to. So I don't think we're going to get much out of him that's controversial or that's going to make a bad soundbite or anything like that. Right. But I think it is going to be important to listen very carefully to what he says about questions about judicial independence, um, about executive powers, um, and uh, separation of powers issues. Is there anything we should look for, maybe who he hires as a law clerk, um, obviously things that he writes and puts out eventually that might indicate kind of his ideology and if it does shift at all? Um, it's, a, it's a more complicated question that you might think because what he writes is actually going to depend a lot on what the other members of the court do. Right. So the ultimate power to assign who writes the opinion actually rests with the chief justice, who's yeah. John Roberts right now. Um, if I had to guess, John Roberts is watching the Trump administration very closely and somewhat warily. Right. Um, Roberts is an extremely careful person, cares deeply, I believe, cares deeply about the reputation of the court and about the court's independence and legitimacy. And so for that reason, I think would be particularly careful about the issues that we just talked about, right. judicial independence and executive authority and things like that. Um, so will Gorsuch be assigned to write an opinion 
having to do with those issues straight out of the gate in his first couple of years on the court. Yeah. Maybe not. Um, you know, it sort of depends on how, how things are going and what the coalitions look like. Right. The junior justices, and he'd be the most junior person on the court, tend to be assigned, you know, again, it depends on the political climate and the right. context of the court, but they don't tend to be assigned the most important cases before the yep. court. So I don't think it's likely that we're going to see a super important opinion be written by Neil Gorsuch in the next couple of years. It might happen, but I'd be surprised if it was. Um, that said, we know we know what Judge Gorsuch does. We know right. his opinions as Judge Gorsuch, but we don't know how those things would change once he is Justice Gorsuch. Like, we, will he really become more of a true originalist? Um, will be will he become more of a pragmatist? We don't really know, and we. We won't know for a couple of years, I don't think. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Maya. This has been super interesting. Um, I'll be sure to follow the rest of your research. I'm sure lots of stuff will happen over the next couple of years that'll keep you plenty busy. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. For more information about the Ash Center, upcoming events, and future podcasts, please visit our website, ash.harvard.edu, and follow us on social media, at Harvard Ash.